Welcome to Tax Justice Warriors, a podcast that celebrates the work of low-income taxpayer clinics and talks about issues related to tax news. I'm your host, Omid Farouzi, staff attorney at Philadelphia Legal Assistance Taxpayer Support Clinic. Today's podcast episode is an interview that I did with Keith Fogg, formerly of Harvard and Villanova Law Schools and the IRS Office of Chief Counsel. Keith has been a true mentor and he continues to give me great advice and it was such a privilege and honor to speak with him about his career and life experiences. We really talked about a lot of different issues and I think you will really enjoy the specific experiences that he recounts here. This was a conversation that we had on December 7th, 2022 at the LITC conference in Phoenix. So with no further ado, here is my interview with Professor Keith Fogg. So I wanted to start off by just asking you about how you found yourself in tax and what made you interested in this field specifically. Um, I found myself in tax because I got offered a job. Um, So when I graduated from law school, I was offered a job by chief counsel's office under their honors program. And uh, that was my only job offer, so that's how I ended up in tax. So what what year was this? 1977. Okay, and uh, and so you said this was after you graduated from undergrad. No, from from law school. From law school, that's right. Okay. Um, so I I, I, actually, I graduated from law school in December of 1976, um, and because I had gone to in my law school, you could go to summer school and and knock out a semester. That way, and I had I was a research assistant for a professor one summer, and I took some summer school classes. And anyway, so I graduated a semester early, and um, I got my a job offer from chief counsel in the mail as I arrived home from my final exam uh, of law school, and I started in in March fourteenth uh, of nineteen seventy seven. Now, when you were in law school, did you take a lot of tax classes? Did you do any tax practicums or clinics? Was the were there? Uh, to, in fact, I mean, I know this. I, I know you you wrote something about the history of low income taxpayer clinics going back to the nineteen seventies. Was this? Was there anything like that that was being offered? Uh, and you went to a University of uh, Richmond, correct? That's correct. I went to University of Richmond Law School. There were no clinics of any kind at University of Richmond when I went there. So, no, I did not take a tax <laughs> clinic. I did not take any clinic. So that's kind of funny that I ended up being a clinician. <laughs> since I never took a clinic when I was in law school. Um, And my law school offered three tax classes, basic income tax, uh, estate and gift tax, um, and corporate tax. I took the tax classes that were available, but that was was, was all there was. And uh, so did the tax classes that you took uh, there in law school, was that part of uh, something that made you more interested in practicing in tax? Um, not not particularly, but uh, I did very well in them, uh, and so when I applied for chief counsel, I think they were impressed that I'd gotten about the, basically the highest grade. So nice. And so when you when you started for chief counsel, then I mean I know you you were at uh, chief counsel for over thirty years. So does that thirty year mark does that begin there right after your law school graduation with that first 
job offer from chief counsel, so you were there continuously there then for 30 years from there? Yes. So I started on March 14th, 1977, and I continued to work for chief counsel until uh, basically the day I turned uh, 55 in October of 1970, excuse me, 2007. So 30, 30 years and seven months, basically. So you, when, in the whole time that you were there, you saw a lot of changes happen politically, technologically. Uh, it was, was it such that when you were there, when you were there for all these changes that it felt like it was kind of uh, slow or gradual or was it kind of like you woke up one day and all of a sudden, wow, you know, here's the internet and here's, you know, oh, there's IRS funding has gone down or uh, was it, how, how did it feel kind of like being there as all of these things uh, were changing in, in that time period? Yeah, with respect to funding, I mean, I'll, I'll translate that into salary. Um, so when I when I graduated from law school and started working for chief counsel, I, I got the I made the highest salary of anybody in my law school class. Wow. Um, so there was a good friend of mine who went to work for the Federal Trade Commission. Who st we both started as GS 11s. He started at a salary that was just over seventeen thousand, and um, that and the people there were a couple guys in our class who went to work for the biggest law firms in Richmond. Um, they made about exact. They made about what we made. I mean, it was, it was working for the federal government was equal to the highest pay of the big law firms. That changed. I mean, we we knew. I mean, I knew when when I, when I started working for the government that even though I had a high salary to start, that that my salary was going to be capped. I mean, it would flatten out. Whereas the person going into private practice might make you know would would likely make a lot more over the long haul. Uh, but but uh, I started under the Carter administration and, and taxes. I mean, and federal government in the in the post World War era leading up to Ronald Reagan was pretty well funded, uh, both in terms of the salaries that the employees got and the number of federal employees there were. So there, there was pretty significant coverage uh, by the federal government. And we had we had what I would call sort of Nordstrom federal government. Uh, uh, pre Reagan, and then Ronald Reagan, you know, was real was real down on the federal government. So we had we switched over to what I'll call Walmart federal government, uh, where you get a lot, you pay a lot, much less taxes. So in the '60s and, and into the '70s, the highest marginal income tax rate was in the 90 percent, um, and then it went way down, you know, to where you know in the 30s and 30 percent. So when you when you change that marginal tax rate to, to that in that dramatic of a, a degree, then you're obviously changing the, the services you can offer. Um, so, uh, yes, that was that was one. So my salary flattened out more than I expected it would, um, but I was I was expecting my salary would flatten out. Um, so, to, so Ronald Reagan brought a relatively big change, but also a change in perception of federal employees. I mean, so federal employment was considered to be um, quite quite. You know, quite good, I guess I'll say, when I started, and and then uh, perceptions changed, I think, over time in terms of whether it was a good idea to go into federal government employment or whether you were just a, a slacker, because that was kind of the, the message coming from from the highest parts of government, that government employees were slackers. And so when you, so in the Reagan era and then thereafter, as we saw tax rates overall significantly decline, especially for the wealthiest individuals, did that change your focus at Chief Counsel? Did that change the priorities there at that office in terms of uh, who, which taxpayers you were pursuing or what kinds of cases you were being assigned? So how did that impact your day-to-day -day work there, basically? 
dramatically changed the makeup of the work. Um, so when I started, the kinds of cases the IRS would audit would generally be um, small businesses. Small businesses are where the, that's where the tax gap is, and, and the IRS knew that, and they were auditing small businesses, and so I had a lot of cases in my inventory uh, for the first decade that I was working there of small businesses, and then gradually the IRS got away from auditing small businesses, because it takes a lot of manpower to audit a small business, so as the as the manpower of the client decreased, the type of cases I, would, I got decreased, changed. So they were still auditing big corporations, and they began using the computers to audit, you know, uh, AUR, you know, automated under reporter notices and other other types of things they could identify with computers. But yes, case cases changed dramatically from the beginning of the time I was at chief counsel until you know my, the time when I left. And. During the Reagan era, of course, though, we also saw the 1986 tax reform that created the code as we know it is today. How did things change for you in the office after 86 specifically? Well, the big, the big change uh, that was resulting from the 86 code, which was also a part of you know, what Reagan was trying to accomplish, and I, and I don't mean to denigrate Reagan particularly. I mean, it's not like, it's not like the society has changed you know, the philosophy that he brought in, lower government and lower taxes, is, has permeated through you know, two uh, eight-year Democratic administrations uh, in addition to the Republican administrations that have succeeded President Reagan. So we seem as a country to have become comfortable with this, with this arc. Um, but in the, in the 80s, there was a, the tax shelter wars. So there were, because, because the rates were so high, People who were making a lot of money were desperate to find a tax shelter. So in the late 70s and early 80s, tax shelters began proliferating. What the 86 Act did was to knock out the underpinnings of a lot of the tax shelters that had developed in the, 19, in the, early, in the late 70s and early 80s. So that changed. So there were a lot of tax shelters in my office. Um, I didn't particularly work on tax shelters, and I, and I thought tax shelters were boring, more or less. Um, but but that was a lot. There was a lot of litigation regarding tax shelters in the '80s, and the '86 Act basically put an end to it. Although the litigation continued on for for several more years. Uh, but I think if you look at the arc of where the, where we are with like one percenters, that this the the complete uh, dramatic change that's occurred since the '70s in terms of the spread of income in our society. Because I think that the, the lowering of the tax rates on the, on the highest earners has allowed them to create basically a class of people uh, that, that makes so much more money uh, than others. And, it doesn't, and it doesn't, it's not being picked up and taxed in the way it would have been taxed before. And we've seen that with uh, the fact that now you have low-income people audited at, in some cases, higher rates than rich people. Uh, and so w then when you, so then... Well, that, I mean, that, I think that was a consequence of what came in through President Clinton. Mm -hmm. So when, um, when you had the welfare-to-work legislation in the mid-90s, and then the, the use of the earned income tax credit to, to push um, benefits out through the tax code, huge change in the, in the number of cases coming into my office. Uh, by that point, I was, I was a manager, I was the head of the office, and, I, and I'm seeing just this influx of cases involving low-income individuals who are being denied credits, um, and we never had that before. 
Um, so another another huge shift happened in the late '90s because of, of the earning income tax credit in terms of the, in terms of the types of cases coming into our office. And so that and that was partially a consequence of his 1993 expansion of the EITC, right? Yes. Now, but but that would you say that though that was something that was a, uh, a development as a consequence of the. Uh, 1994 Republican Congress coming in and Newt Gingrich coming in and then you saw them working with Clinton to do things like the Tax Reform and Restructuring Act. Would you say that you could draw a direct line between all of that and this higher focus on uh, EITC audits? Well, I mean, if you're talking about the Restructuring Reform Act of 1998, I don't, I don't, I don't tie that into EITC audits. I would, I would tie the EITC audits into the, the legislation that had occurred earlier creating the earning income tax credit. Hmm. Um, the 1998 legislation created another type of case coming into the office which had to do with collection. Previously we weren't litigating collection issues. Um, so the, the creation of a collection due process, the changing of the innocent spouse statute so dramatically. But the, the 6013 innocent spouse statute that existed prior to 1998 gave very limited relief. Um, and so the, the, the 1998 statute really opened the door to a lot more types of innocent spouse relief. So we began to see those kind of cases. We began to see collection due process cases. Um, and we were still getting the earned income tax credit cases. But by this point, the auditing of small businesses had almost stopped. Hmm. Um, the IRS um, just didn't have the, the juice for it. Um, and and they, you know, they, they had... You know, throughout, you know, starting in the 80s and continuing on, the, the, the hiring of people at the IRS became very erratic. So there would be years when they didn't hire anybody. Um, and, then, and then if you go a couple of years without hiring people, um, then when you do hire people, you have this massive training. So you're taking revenue agents offline or revenue officers offline to train people, and then they're not, they're not collecting. So you saw, I, I saw a lot, a lot less what I would call general enforcement. There were a lot less cops on the street. We began, you know, the IRS was using a lot more computers to find people, but if you were in small business, you were you were protected from that kind of thing. I mean, we obviously the government's tried to do certain things. They've tried to do things with K ones and ten ninety nines and other. You know, they they you know they they're getting more data into the computers, uh, but if but it's it's without without more cops on the street. If you look at the number of revenue agents and revenue officers who existed in the seventies, you probably have less today. Even though we have you know a couple hundred million more people in the United States than we had in the in the seventies. Wow. Well, do you anticipate that that will change with the Inflation Reduction Act? Well, we'll see. I mean, uh, first of all, we'll see whether the Inflation Reduction Act actually gets to stay in place. Yeah, right. Um, but if it does, then I you know I would be surprised if they don't put more revenue agents and revenue officers. Into you know out there on the street, but I'll, but also because the IRS has changed, you know they need to put a lot more people in the taxpayer assistance centers. They need to put a lot more people on the phone lines. They still need to dedicate. They might could dedicate that entire amount of money to, to fixing their computers. Um, so that, I mean, the Irish computers obviously you know were you know state of the art in the 1960s and have only gone down uh, since then. It seems like. So there's, there's a, they've gotten so far behind in some of the in some of the things that they could do if they had if they had the good computers. Now let's let's go back to the uh, to 1998 there. So of course, uh, with in that era 97 98, you also saw the uh, LITC grant uh, coming forward and LITCs popping up all over the country, 
and we're now looking, I guess, at the last 10 years of your service there uh, as Chief Counsel. Uh, when uh, the LITC grant was created and LITC started to represent taxpayers, um, how did that, if at all, affect your service at Chief Counsel? Were you, did you see a noticeable shift? Basically, how did it affect you there? Well, what had happened in Richmond in, in 1992 was that Nina Olson started the Community Tax Law Project. So that project already existed before the RRA 98 legislation. So the legislation uh, started allowed Nina to eat and be fed, but, uh, uh, but uh, she was already working and, and we had a working relationship with her office and I thought that was terrific because if you're just rep, if you're if you're a chief counsel attorney litigating against a, an unrepresented individual, it's just not a fair fight. I mean, you you have so much more knowledge of what's going on than they do, and and even even if you think that that taxpayer has a, has a possible you know is, is entitled to to what they're claiming, you, you can't put their case together for them. They've got to help you find the data that will allow you to to to, to give them what they're asking for. So one of the nice things about working for the federal government for 30 years is that the government wanted me to find the right answer. I didn't, I didn't have to worry about trying to, to get the most dollars I could out of a case. I just had to find the right answer. And if I could find the right answer, I could resolve the case. I mean, I, and if the right answer was the taxpayer was entitled to what they were claiming, nobody cared at the government. We were happy. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's, a, that's a real nice client to, have, to represent, I, I felt. Um, but I but I couldn't find the right answer without help from the client, from the taxpayer, and, and, and taxpayers couldn't couldn't always you know gather the data or articulate what it was that they they had that would help me help them. So I I, would, I very much welcomed uh, the clinic uh, in, in the CTLP. So they were there starting in 1992, and I that was I became the head of the office in 1992 in Richmond. So they were there. Um, basically almost simultaneous with me becoming the head of the office. And when you were at Chief Counsel, if you don't mind sharing, what what were one or two of the most notable or interesting cases that you handled? Um, so one of the most notable events happened to me in, as a result of R98. So my um, Senator Roth picked 10 collection cases that he thought were abusive. And the very first one that he picked was um, a case from Richmond, a case from the Richmond District, a case from Virginia. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the district director called me up. He'd gotten a, a notice from the Senate to, to have four employees come and testify before the, the Senate staffers. Uh, he said, Keith, I, you know, what are we going to do? So I mean, he, the district director is the person who's in charge of all, all of the IRS in Virginia back in the 1990s. And I was the district counsel. So he, so I said, well, send me over that case file. And let me let let me let's look at it. I'll see. I'll, you know, we'll see what we need to do. And he did send it over, and I took a hard look at it. And I had a couple other people in my office take a hard look at it. We couldn't find anything that would that would merit. You know, talking. I mean, all I could see was the IRS had been over backwards for the fella. Um, so I, I, we we were the very first one. So the ten cases that were picked by Senator Roth, the case from Virginia was the very first one that met with the Senate staffers. I spent an entire day meeting with the Senate staffers two hours with the revenue officer, two hours with the revenue officer group manager, two hours with the revenue agent, two hours with the revenue agent group manager. And at the end of the day, I mean, they were asking the same questions to all of them. It was a very interesting day. I mean, I, I felt like I was teaching them tax procedure because they, they were asking a lot of questions that, that indicated they didn't really understand what was happening at the IRS. 
At the end of the day, I said, I think you believe that this taxpayer filed tax returns in three three straight years and the IRS lost those returns and that created all these problems. And I said, I don't I don't think the IRS would lose returns in three straight years. Yeah. Did they lose returns? Sure. Is it possible they'd lose returns in two years? Possible. <laughs> three years in a row? Really, really uh, long odds at that. I said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go to the state of Virginia because you have to file a copy of your federal return with the state of Virginia. And what I do when somebody tells me that the IRS has lost their returns, I always check with Virginia because it would, wouldn't it be odd if Virginia lost the same return? Well, as it happened, Virginia also did not receive his returns. <laughs> so I provided that. The, the, the Senate people said, oh, you don't have to do that. I said, I'm going to do it. I got the, the data from Virginia showing he didn't file with Virginia either. Um, and I sent it up to the Senate, and they never heard anything more from that case. So that was a very that was an interesting day. It was an interesting case to work on. But my most... Uh, you know, my most interesting trial at ta- in, in, in chief counsel, maybe, maybe, was my last trial that involved the, um, the valuation of a, of a painting. Um, and the, the painting hung in a mansion in Virginia, and, uh, but, but the family didn't, didn't know that it was of any particular value, it just, but it hung in the dining room. And then at the age of 85, the couple who owned this mansion outside of Charlottesville, uh, the wife passed away and the the husband, the, the children's moved the husband into a smaller house, not a, not a small house, but a smaller house. And there was a big storeroom at that house and the painting, a lot of furniture went into that storeroom. They passed away about 15 years later. His children didn't want any of the furniture in the storeroom, so they suggested to you know, nieces and nephews and other family members to come and take some of Dad's stuff. And so this one woman came and took the painting and a, you know, maybe a buffet and a couple chairs or something goes home to her home outside of Washington, D.C., and think, you know, she thinks the painting might be valuable. Mm-hmm. Contacts an art dealer, an art, an art appraiser, and the person comes over and says, oh, my gosh, you have found a never-before-known painting by a uh, mid-19th century artist by the name of Severin Rosen, and I think it's worth $450,000. Um, she didn't tell her, her family members uh, about this um, the value of the painting that she had picked up. Uh, but not too long thereafter, um, her husband was caught cheating with his secretary, so there's a nasty divorce. Oh my God. He, he wants half of the value of the painting, and, and under Maryland law, he wasn't entitled to it, so he was unhappy. Um, but she needs to then sell the painting because um, she, she's divorced and she has two small children, she needs more money. So she goes back to the appraiser, and the appraiser puts her in touch with the dealer. The dealer comes over, looks at the painting, says, "Wow, no one has ever sold a Severin Rosen painting for four fifty, but I'll see what I can do." He goes and offers it to the National Gallery of Art for nine hundred thousand, and they want to buy it. Um, it turns out they decide not to buy it uh, for a couple of reasons. But the the, the American the curator of American art at the National Gallery was a good friend with the curator of American art at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts and says, hey, there's this Severin Rosen that's just come on the market nobody's ever known about before. You were interested in one of these, and it's got a Virginia provenance, so you're interested. So yeah, ship it down to Richmond. He wants to buy it, uh, but, he, but he reduces the price to 875 because he's going to have to buy a new frame. The frame had kind of been damaged during the 15 years sitting in a, in a room with no heater or cold. Um, so the, so the, he buys it. The dealer comes back to the to the woman. Great news! I've been able to sell your painting for four hundred fifty thousand dollars. And then she, and then, so she gets her four hundred fifty thousand dollars minus his commission, um, but asks him to return a book to her that had that that described the home where the painting was set, and that, that was added to the provenance of the painting. 
and he returns the book, which belonged to her sister, which is why she was asking for it back. When she gets the book back, out of the book falls the true bill of sale. <laughs> so she lawyers up and gets the rest of her money. Meanwhile, the IRS uh, comes onto the scene with the daughters of the decedent, uh, you know, saying, oh, whoa, whoa, we've got some information that suggests, you know, there was a painting, a valuable painting that wasn't reported. There were some other, there were some other things on the estate tax return that were found. Anyway, I, you know, by the time the IRS issues the notice of deficiency, it was past the normal three-year statute of limitations. So I had to do, I had to, I was within the six-year statute, which meant I had to prove a 25% omission. I basically had to prove the painting was worth a little bit over $500,000 in order to hold up in the statute. And you might say, well, that'd be easy because it sold for 875. But that was several years later that it sold. Um, I went out and got an appraisal. The guy said it was worth over a million. They they went out and got a new appraisal that, that said it was worth three hundred thousand. <laughs> we uh, we had a trial. The trial was interesting because my appraiser was just phenomenally knowledgeable, but he was an art an art gallery owner, and he didn't he wasn't somebody accustomed to writing appraisal reports. Their appraisal was not nearly as knowledgeable, but was a kind of a hired gun appraiser. So she was very knowledgeable about writing appraisal reports. Um, but the tax court rules, if you've ever had an appraiser, are that you the appraiser the appraisal is the appraiser's direct testimony. Interesting. But I but my appraisal report wasn't wasn't very detailed. He he knew he knew everything, but he didn't write it all down. He didn't write it down in a way. And you you create the ethical rules about telling an appraiser what to do. So I couldn't really say you know you need to say this you need to say that. Um, but anyway, so I was looking for a way to whether under the rules I could I could ask him questions on direct exam about her appraisal because but through that I could get out why her appraisal wasn't very good and, and show his detailed knowledge and I, I so I researched the tax court judge and I found four appraisal cases that he had tried over the last several years and so then I called those people at chief counsel office who had tried those cases like did you have your expert testify about the other experts report and the first two people said oh no I don't you can't do that can you the third person said yeah I did we had an agreement that we would testify about theirs and they would testify about ours I didn't want to go to the other side and seek an agreement because that would show my hand. Fourth person I called said, oh yeah, of course I did that, so boom. So in the trial, I, I just went right in to asking him about the report. They didn't object, so I got all the evidence in that I wanted. And two days after the trial, uh, the attorney for the taxpayers called me up and said, would you still offer us the deal you offered before trial? Because we, they, could, they could tell that we had, we had proven our case and more. Wow. So it was a fun case. I learned a lot about uh, you know, art, art, the art world and, uh, of course, all the, all the shenanigans that were happening with respect to this. And I got to know the curator for American Art at the Virginia Museum <laughs> of Fine Arts. Uh, she wrote me a very nice note because now she had some real good stories. Right, right. And that, is that where the painting That's is today? That's where the today? painting is today. Okay. I went inside about a year ago. Oh, my I go, it's, I go over and look at it every so often. It's a fun. I still have a, a note. They had. I got a pillow with the picture of the painting on it that my colleagues at, at the Richmond office gave to me when I retired. And I, <laughs> I have a card with the picture of the painting on it that the um, the, the curator of American Art uh, for the museum sent me. Wow. So, but my and my my last potential trial was was an appraisal of a castle in the Czech Republic. Um, and this person had grown up in the castle, and then his family fled when the Nazis came. He came they came back at the end of World War II, and then they fled when the communists came. Jeez. He ends up being a Harvard professor, and then he transferred and was a UVA professor, so he died in Virginia. So the, the estate was a Virginia estate, so that's how I got involved. And the question was, what was the value of the castle at the time he died? 
Um, it wasn't a castle like looking out over a river. It was a castle in the middle of a town, but the, the communists had turned it into a, a, a school, and the, they turned the dining hall into a dining room into a gymnasium. But he also owned, uh, you know, maybe five or six hundred acres of, of forest and a number of other dependency buildings. And in order to try the case, I had to find an appraiser who could appraise, could value castles in the Czech Republic and write a report and testify in English. So that was, uh, just finding appraisers is very tricky. I mean, my very first case involved finding an appraiser uh, who could appraise the value of, of picking blackberries, oddly enough. It was a reasonable compensation case. So wow. fi finding appraisers is, and, and the factual nature of the cases that I tried, I tried a case involving uh, the compensation of a McDonald's operator. Um, so I tried a case involving the compensation of a, of a bottling company owner. I tried the compensation of a blackberry picker. Um, so so some, you really get to learn when you're trying cases, it's, it's wonderful to learn all the facts about that case. So I know, I know a lot about McDonald's now. I know a lot about soft drinks. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot about some, some weird things because I got deep into it and understanding my case to try. Well, well, and, you've, and I'm sure you've been able to use this knowledge uh, then not only in your your endeavors after that going into uh, practice as a tax clinician, but also just in your regular everyday life. Um, so, uh, wow, I mean, that, that is interesting. I, mean, I have not yet dealt with a uh, any appraisers uh, uh, being in LITC, but maybe that, maybe that day will come. Uh, so then... Uh, you, what what spurred you to go from uh, chief counsel into uh, uh, the tax clinic world? And was that so? When you when you ended at chief counsel, did you then directly from there go to Villanova Law? What was the timeline there like? Uh, it's actually a weird timeline, but the what spurred me was similar to what spurred me to to um, to getting a job with with the tax. I got a job offer, so my my life is just is one of luck. Um, so, um, I had, um, in 1987, I came to the University of Arizona and taught as a visiting professor for a year under a program that Chief Counsel had. Um, and so I had, I had an experience as a teacher at a law school and, and I kind of, I, I thought that was a good job. Um, and I, in 1992, I began to, I developed and began teaching a course at Georgetown Law School on bankruptcy and taxation. Uh, which I taught for 15 years. So I, I, and I, and I taught basic income tax at University of Richmond, so I, and I taught tax procedure at, at Virginia Commonwealth University in their master's tax program. So I'd done a fair amount of teaching at, at the university and law school level, and I, and I enjoyed it, so I thought I would like in retirement to see if I could find a teaching job, but that's, those are hard to find. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was looking for a teaching job, um, and I, and I, in, in 1998, uh, I, after RA98, I was I was temporarily assigned to the National Office of Chief Counsel to head up the division that uh, wrote the, that handled all the collection uh, provisions because most of most of RA98 affected collection, and so we were writing. I was I was the I was in charge of writing the collection due process regulations and some of the other regulations that came out of RA98. And, and uh, Professor Leslie Book. Um, was writing an article on the collection due process provisions, and, and so I met him at an ABA meeting, and he wanted to interview me so he could learn more about the, the regulation process. And so I had met Les, um, you know, in late 1998 or early 1999, 
I met him again at an ABA meeting around 2004, 2005, and I said I was nearing retirement, and I was interested in becoming a professor, and he said, oh, that's great, so you need to do some writing. Um, I guess see if you can get an article out there or two. That, and uh, then, then the job at Villanova came open. That was, that was his job. Because he was the director of the clinic at Villanova. And uh, I didn't apply for it because at that point I hadn't done any writing. And I figured, well, what's the point? Mm-hmm. And then he and I ended up at the LITC conference in 2006. He and I ended up on a panel together. And I, and I said to him, well, I noticed your job you know, had come open and they advertised for it. And I, and I thought about applying, but since I'd never written anything, I didn't bother applying. He said, no, no, you should apply. And so I applied for that job and I got it to be the director of the clinic at Villanova. But I, the jobs I was applying for before I applied for that one were more doctrinal to teach basic, you know, to teach not to run a clinic, because, but to just be a tax professor. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wasn't having success, so I ended up getting a job as a clinician um, through that process. And so then you, uh, I, I noticed that you uh, had, so you went to, you were, you were in Virginia for work and, and before that for, uh, for, for law school and for um, undergrad. And so was this, uh, you, then you moved from Virginia to Pennsylvania in 2007? Yes. So it was my... Uh, time Virginian, all uh, of a sudden moving a little uh, bit further. Basically up. a lifetime Virginian, yeah. yeah. I had worked, I'd worked in D.C. for several years uh, during my career, and I'd, I'd mm-hmm. spent a little time out here in, in Tucson, and I'd worked a couple years in Portland, Oregon. But, yeah, basically I was a Virginian. Um, and... Uh, my, my wife was tolerant to agree. By that time, our children were were, were out of the house, um, so it was just the two of us. And she she hadn't wanted me to apply for jobs uh, that would move us from Richmond before our children were were finished with high school. And so the deal was sort of I wouldn't do that, and she would she would move if I found something later. So so uh, yeah, moving to Pennsylvania was was a big deal. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, how long were you uh, at Villanova? So, I w- physically, I was there for eight years. So, I was okay. there from 20, 2007 to 2015. Technically, I was there for 10 years because in 2015, I went to Harvard as a visitor to start their tax clinic. So, I was a visitor at Harvard for two years in 2015 and 2016. And then, after in the second year, I was a visitor there. They, they offered me a job to be a professor there. And I, and I switched schools. But I was technically still a Villanova professor for the first two years I was at Harvard. I didn't become a Harvard professor until 2017. I just missed you because I, I started Villanova Law in 2015 uh, so when you would, would have gone off to Harvard as the visiting professor. But uh, in terms of your time at Villanova Law, uh, what was that experience like? Was there, uh, was there kind of like a culture shock from, I mean, I know you had, you said you had done uh, some of this work as an adjunct before uh, and developed this course on bankruptcy uh, but um, well, how was that transition from going from chief counsel to all of a sudden being in charge of students working with them on these cases teaching etc well that kind of goes to answer a question you asked earlier and to, full, and to fill it out so when I when I was I got the job at Villanova and they wanted me to start in the fall semester of 20, 2007 but I didn't turn 55 until the first week of October of 2007. 
and I couldn't retire from chief counsel and get my full pension benefits until I turned 55. You had, you had to be 55 years old and have 30 years or more of service. So I had started when I was 24 and a half. So I had, I had the 30 years of service, but I had to wait until I was 55. So what villain? So Villanova said, "Well, we'll we'll start the clinic that fall with with less book teaching. It still." Um, and then you can take over once you turn 55 and you can come here and be full time. <laughs> but my, because I, but I was trying to convince the officer chief counsel to let me just take annual leave for the last two months of my career at the government because I had plenty of leave built up, but they wouldn't let me do that. But they did transfer me to Pennsylvania. So they transferred <laughs> me to the Philadelphia <laughs> office for the last two weeks, for the last two months of my government career. So I would go to work in the Philadelphia office of chief counsel and that and where Tom Rath worked. Um, and then I would, um, but I would take off time during the day to go to the tax clinic class um, and to go and observe other classes. So I observed uh, Michelle's class. Yes, uh, yeah. I observed uh, DeVero's De class. So I, I would, I'd never taken a clinic. Right, right, so you're trying to figure out how does this work, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so I'm watching what they're doing. And I was so I was very fortunate that I got to watch less. I was I was kind of his co-teacher, uh, and got to watch the other clinicians teaching, so that I could inform myself on what would be what worked. And they were all good teachers, and so but I was learning from different things from all of them. Uh, so it was a great transition for me on this. And so it's starting in uh, the beginning of October. Now I could. Because I couldn't hand, I couldn't look at the cases because I was I was the party opponent. I was working for chief counsel. Right, right, yeah. Um, so starting at the end of the first week of October, now I could run the clinic. But Les continued uh, to to teach the clinic uh, throughout the. I mean, I took on more and more responsibilities. But he, but I got to watch basically a whole semester of him teaching the clinic. Uh, so so it was really really terrific for me. I had a very good transition. Um, but I, but the but the but becoming a clinician from being a government employee, is not a hard thing. I mean, so in the government for many years, I I ran a, a relatively you know I ran a small office of you know ten or twelve attorneys, twenty people, uh, running a clinic, you know ten or twelve students, you know and a couple of other administrative people. It was, it was kind of like running my chief counsel office. Only instead of having people who never left, I had people who left every three or four months. <laughs> right. right. Uh, but I, but managing students, managing attorneys, that that wasn't too hard. So, the freedom of being a, a professor compared to being a government employee, I could I could say whatever I wanted. You know, I could. Um, so my biggest concern was writing larger articles in order to get tenure. Uh, whether I could produce, and that goes back to what Les was saying. You know, could I at the you know at, at the advanced age of fifty five, learn how to write you know, larger articles that would be a publishable quality. Um, so I remember at the very first uh, like picnic right before school started, they have a faculty staff picnic, and I was talking to Amy Spare, the librarian, mm -hmm. uh, and I told Amy, I said, Amy, it's your, your, you, it's going to be you're the you're the key person for me in order to get tenure here, <laughs> in order to stay, because I'm going to be I'm trying to learn everything I can from you about how how to do research for scholarly publications. And Amy, Amy was my angel. She she was super helpful to me. And, and, uh, Doing so, I, I wrote each each year. I would work on. I had an idea for an article. I would work on it during the school year, and then I would I would write in the in May and early June, and then I would with my research assistant, you know, polish it up and 
and put it out for publication in August. So I was able to publish an article each year. And because I had I had so much teaching experience, they, they started me as an associate professor mm-hmm. rather than an assistant professor. So I actually got tenure within four years. Wow. And was this when procedurally taxing and the fog manual effectively representing your client, is this around when those uh, things also were starting? So I, I volunteered to write on um, Effectively representing, probably in 2007, I wrote a chapter, um, but maybe two chapters. But uh, then, but the person who took it on to, for the fourth edition of procedurally effectively representing uh, basically dropped the ball. And the and the people, person at the ABA who now has Meg Newman's predecessor at the ABA, basically had to take take on the getting it done. Um, so I so I went to them and I, I said I'll be you know I, I'll I will do this the next time you do it, um, and, and so they were a little skeptical of whether I could do it or not. But uh, I changed the way it was done, and I tried to find two authors for every chapter: one private practitioner and one clinician. And I knew a lot of people in the community, so I so yeah I, turned, I, I think I I think I successfully edited effectively representing. But I so I started writing it. Almost as soon as I got there, writing a couple chapters, but it wasn't until like maybe 2010 that I was beginning to do the f- the fifth edition, which was the first I, I did. I did the fifth, sixth, and seventh editions, and then um, I was training Christine and, mm-hmm. and Patrick for for takeover because I knew I was going to retire before too long. And I've certainly benefited from it. I remember when I was an intern, summer of 2016, at Philadelphia Legal Assistance and our LITC and being told you got to read through all these chapters of the fog manual it's called the fog manual for keith fog and now i'm an author of the misclassification chapter so uh and i remember reading it when i was an intern and and during my fellowship application like getting to know these things and so i i have found it super helpful um yeah i tried to change the format of it a little bit to be to be very practical and um, i added a bunch of new chapters to, to deal with things it was originally developed by law school clinicians in the early 90s, um, and but most, mostly just a tax procedure manual. And then I began adding all these chapters that I thought were very, very important for the work that the legal, the low-income tax clinics were doing. So it expanded quite a bit under, under my editorship. But it was fun. It was a good way. Certainly, it, it got me very well known in the tax clinic community. But the blog started in the summer of 2013. So by that point, I was co-authoring le- the person, the, the the main treatise on tax procedure is is IRS practice and procedure, which was developed by Michael Salzman. Mm-hmm. And Michael Salzman had passed away in, in around two thousand eight, I'm going to say. And Les Book had been his um, his associate uh, early in his career, and, and he went to the editors and said, "Could I take over that book um, or that treatise?" And they and they said, "Well, on a trial basis, okay, we'll let you do it." And so then. I began working with Les around 2010 or 2011 to help him with the collection chapters in that book. And then, because we were having to keep up with everything that was happening in order to update the book, the treatise all the time, uh, Les had the idea, well, maybe we should write a blog every once in a while, a blog post, uh, just to, you know, because we were seeing all this stuff that, that could impact other people. And uh, so we started, we started the blog with the idea that we'd write once or twice a week. And then it just kind of evolved into something that we got very popular relatively quickly, and we mm-hmm. and we began to do it almost every day. 
Well, and I know, you know, either, I guess it was to, then just a couple of years into procedurally taxing where you were able to get, I think you said the most popular post you have on offset bypass refunds. I've, I know I've gone back to that myself several times uh, for clients. Um, so that that's pretty, that's pretty neat. And then, so then you were at Villanova Law um, uh, until 2015, essentially, um, and then, and then you ended up being permanently at Harvard uh, by 2017. Uh, so, what spurred you to uh, go to Harvard? They asked me. They, yeah. So you just get, they, you just keep getting job offers, no matter what happens. It was just luck. Yeah, I wasn't. I mean, <laughs> Villanova is a great place to work. I had no desire to leave Villanova. Yeah. Um, and uh, the people at Harvard uh, wanted to start a tax clinic. And uh, they were working with uh, Dale Kinzinger. I don't know if you've ever met Dale, but he he and I worked together in chief counsel's office. And he he retired. He he we both worked in the national office back in 1977 together. And then he moved to Kansas City, and I, I eventually moved to Richmond. Uh, but we we knew each other. Dale is several years older than me, maybe eight or nine years older than me. Um, but he so he retired, and he became the clinic director of the Kansas City uh, University of Kansas City Missouri clinic. And then he moved to Boston because his only child um, lived in Boston, and so he they, and he ended up being recruited to assist with the veterans clinic at the Legal Services Center of Harvard because they they had a lot of clients who who had tax issues, and so the director of the veterans clinic said, "We need a, we need a tax clinic here at Harvard." So they all said, "Well, you know, talk to Keith. You know, maybe he can help you." And so they were talking to me, and I was giving them ideas and pointing them toward people. And then, and I said, and I'm on sabbatical next year, so if you need, you know, so if you need anything in particular, just let me know. I can, I should be around to help you. And they said, yeah, you're on sabbatical. Oh, well, come and instead of being, you know, instead of just sitting, you know, sitting at the beach or whatever you do on sabbatical, <laughs> come, come up here and start this clinic at Harvard. So I said, okay, well, I've never, you know, go to Harvard for a year. That, that sounds pretty cool. You know, so I went up to Harvard for a year, and they said, well, then they said, well, well, Keith, why don't you just stay? <laughs> And uh, and it was it was actually hard because I liked Villanova a lot. I really miss right. my colleagues at Villanova. I miss the students. I mean, the Harvard students are, are great, but the Villanova Villanova was much more uh, because the because the legal service center at Harvard is in, in a, is away from campus. I'm really much less uh, integrated with campus life, and that that was. I mean, that was a big deal at Villanova. It was so cool to be you know wear his academic regalia and mm-hmm. all these things that academics do and. At Harvard, I only wore my academic regalia once. That was this year. I went to graduation this year for the first time. At, at, at Villanova, all the faculty went to graduation, but at Harvard, I went to graduation. There was maybe 10 members of the 125-member faculty who were there. Just a very different vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, and they never, at Villanova, had to do a lot of committee work and service work, never had to do any of that at Harvard. But the great thing about Harvard was that the community was in the clinic, and clients were walking in every day uh, looking for tax help, and at Villanova, in eight years, I had one client walk in. Well, you know how you know the neighborhood around Villanova. Yeah, yeah. It's not a neighborhood that people are going to walk in with with low income tax problems. Right. Um, but at, where we were at Harvard, I mean, just people would walk in. It's just so cool to to connect with clients that way, uh, and it was cool to be at the Legal Service Center where there were six other clinics in you know directly doing direct poverty representation, and the clinics at at, at Villanova are very diverse. And that, that they don't have that same kind of hand, mm-hmm. you know, all, all focused toward, toward one thing. So, great, great experience at both schools. I mean, I can't, I can't say enough about either Harvard or Villanova. 
and now, and now that you're in semi-retirement, uh, I know that you've uh, kept busy. Of course, recently there was the Bachelor case uh, that you played a role in uh, there, and uh, I did also see that uh, uh, our uh, Villanova colleague, Tuan Samahan, posted about how uh, he represented you in an Eighth Circuit case where you had a victory involving uh, a FOIA request, I believe. Uh, so actually, let's talk about that first, uh, uh, because folks listening may not be as familiar with that as they are with the Bechler case. Yeah, well, the FOIA case, again, it's uh, it sort of fell into my lap, what was happening, but there was another clinician who was really angry that the IRS asked uh, practitioners for their personal uh, identification information. So they asked you for your social security number and other things. Yep. It's like, why are you asking me that? Is it going to become a part of the taxpayer's file? And the manual, the Internal Revenue Manual, doesn't, it was blacked out. It was... <laughs> the redacted, yeah. <laughs> it was redacted. You couldn't see what they're going to do with your information. <clears throat> so he, so, so Nick, um, who was the one who was the, the driver on this, came to me and said, Keith, I'm going to bring a FOIA case and I'd like you to join me because I, I think you know you you know everybody you know you know all this stuff so why not you so I said okay that's a good idea so so we brought so we got brought the suit and, and and we got Tuan and his law firm to represent us for free or for you know for whatever fees they would get and uh, and we we won uh, some concessions enough to get them some fees but mostly the judge said no you can't see this stuff it's it's law tax enforcement it's law enforcement. And so we appealed, but at the time we appealed, Nick took a job with the Minnesota uh, Department of Minnesota Attorney General's office, so he could no longer participate <laughs> in the suit. So the suit was originally under his name, with me as a second name, and then it became Fogg versus United States. So in, in the Eighth Circuit, we uh, Tuan, you know, I'm, I'm doing nothing but just sitting here, they're, they're representing me, but Tuan and, and the others argued that the, the judge was wrong. The judge needed should, should have in, had an in-camera inspection at the that it's to it's not law enforcement. You know, we, we were just doing civil. You know, we were representing people in civil cases. What's the law enforcement aspect? Why are they you know Why are they treating this as though it's some kind of criminal matter or something? And the Eighth Circuit agreed, so they remanded it. So now we're now we're waiting for the for the district court judge to rule on the remand. Well, well, and I, I've noticed that too with. You know, still that's the case. They ask you for your SSN, and it seems to be a relatively recent development because I don't think they always were doing that. Well, they've been doing it for the last four or five years, and so that, so yes, it would never. They were never doing it before then, and so mm -hmm. like, why did you start doing it? What are you doing with this information? Is it going? Can the taxpayer now see my social security number? Right. Um, so we'll see what happens, but uh, it's kind of fun to be Fog versus United States. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, maybe that will end up in the U.S. Supreme Court, like like Bechler did. Um, so, how, so in terms of your experience with the Bechler case, what was your? How, how did you get involved with that case? And uh, are you? Um, how do you? It's a very broad question, but how, what do you foresee as the most significant uh, potential consequence of the principle that that case has established? Well, I'll first talk about how I got involved. So we, so when I started working at Harvard, um, Carl Smith, uh, who was formerly the director of the clinic at um, at um, Cardozo Law School, he was retired. Carl's a Harvard Law grad. He's a double Harvard person. He's a Harvard undergrad, Harvard Law grad. And Carl and I had been friends. We had done some articles together. Um, Carl's brilliant, and I, I'm again, I'm just tagging along for the ride. And uh, 
and Carl Carl agreed to do some volunteer work with the clinic, and and he had seen this issue of he had been following the Supreme Court cases, the non-tax Supreme Court cases on jurisdiction, and he said, Keith, we should look for one of these kind of cases, and then the Guralnik case came came up, um, and Guralnik was a case where the the lawyer for Mr. Guralnik on Friday the thirteenth of February of two thousand and fifteen mailed um, by by FedEx. Uh, for the first thing in the morning, delivery to the IRS uh, CD or to the tax court a CDP petition, and the uh, 30th day was Sunday, so Sunday, February 15th. Um, so uh, you get 75 with three. You go to the next day. The next day was a holiday. Was President's Day, so you go to the next day, February 17th. Well, on February 17th in Washington D.C., it snowed, and the tax court was closed. So the FedEx actually went there, but they couldn't deliver it because it couldn't get in. So they came back the next day on February 18th and delivered the petition. And the government moved to dismiss the case because um, the, the, it didn't it no longer met the 7503 rule because the two the snow a snow day is not described in 7503. It's only a Saturday or Sunday or holiday. Mm-hmm. So it didn't meet 7503. So then you look at the timely mailed, timely filed rule. But the IRS had not updated its its private delivery service. Um, List for eleven years, and the Fed, and the FedEx program, the pro- process that he chose was better than anything on the list. But it didn't exist eleven years ago or eleven years before that. And they updated their their list in May, uh, three months after after the um, after the grounding case was brought and added that <laughs> May twenty fifteen. Yeah. yeah, okay. Uh, poetic justice. So we are we came in as amicus. Uh, and argued that, you know, don't worry, tax court, it doesn't really matter that it was filed a day late. Um, the time period for filing is not jurisdictional. Look at the look at this line of Supreme Court cases that's now, at that point, was 11 years old. Uh-huh. Um, it, you know, it's not a clear statement. It's not stare decisis. You know, this, it's not jurisdictional. And, um, and I think we took the court totally by surprise by coming in with that amicus brief. And, um, and uh, the court went into conference, you know, the full court voted 17 to nothing against us. <laughs> so, so we, we didn't take that laying down. So, no, yeah. so we said, okay, tax court, if that's the way you want to be. So we, we, we focused on um, CDP and innocent spouse because those were, equi- those were clearly equitable provisions of the code. Um, they were relatively new. They didn't have a long history. And you didn't have the, the barrier of 7459 and what does it mean when a case gets dismissed or doesn't get dismissed for, for future refund litigation. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we found a case in the second. You know, we, so we began looking for dismissals. Right? Carl's reading through all the, ca- all the cases that are getting dismissed by the tax court to see, you know, if there's cases that are worth appealing. So mm-hmm. we found the case in the Third Circuit where the IRS had written to the person, Ms. Rubel, and said, you know, you can file your petition by X date, but she couldn't. She had to file it, you know, they said April 19th, but it was really like April 5th. They were off by two weeks. Um, so we had a, we actually had a letter that the IRS wrote with the wrong date. And then we found another in the Second Circuit where they gave the wrong the wrong date, and, and they, then we found one in the Fourth Circuit where they gave the wrong date. These were all innocent spouse cases. We are went into the circuits and all three, lost all three. <laughs> Um, uh, argued a case in the Fourth Circuit, argued a case in the Tenth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit. We were, you know, so we were, we were big losers. We we're mostly losers. <laughs> um, and then uh, the Beckler case came along, and the, the attorney for, for Ms. Beckler, or for the law firm of Beckler, 
um, found all the cases that we'd been arguing, and so he reached out to us, and then we 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 helped, as we did with a number of people, we helped him write his brief, but then we filed an amicus brief to cover the points that weren't covered in his brief. And then, like, two weeks before the oral argument, he called me up and said, would you guys do the oral argument? This was in the middle of the pandemic. So whoever did it was going to do it in their pajamas because you, <laughs> you didn't have to go out to the Eighth Circuit. Um, and two weeks wasn't because we, whenever I have a, my students were making these arguments in all the circuits, uh, but we, but I, but it takes it takes you know, a few months to get my students ready. I mean, we're doing a lot of mooting, we're doing a lot of you know prep work before they go and make the oral argument. So I couldn't get anybody ready that fast. So I called one of my former students. I mean, I thought about doing it myself. I called one of my former students who had made the identical argument in the Fourth Circuit, and she was brilliant. She's a great, great oralist, and said, Amy, you're interested, because she, she had graduated, she clerked for the Federal Circuit, and now she was working for Latham Watkins. So Amy checked with her firm, firm said fine, so Amy, and then the firm got really got behind her on it, and uh, so she made the oral argument and lost, but the firm was invested, and so they, they moved for, for rehearing on Bonk in the Eighth Circuit, lost. We're filing amicus briefs all the time, and the, and then they filed for cert. We filed an amicus brief, uh, and then they got cert, and we filed an amicus brief in the in the case in chief, and then they won nine to nothing. Um, so it, you know, if we feel like it was our issue that we had developed this issue for mm-hmm. six years to get it to the Supreme Court, but it was the, it was the Latham and Watkins team that took it over the finish line. And they they have a Supreme Court litigator who is Melissa Sherry, just a brilliant uh, woman. And, and they, they had Melissa, and they had my student Amy, and they had one other. Woman, uh, Carolyn, uh, they threw all women, all women team nice. for the Supreme Court case, and all three were just spectacular. So we were very fortunate to have our to have our issue represented by by that team. So what what I that that's how it got there. But yeah. the, what I what I hope is that um, we will now this now the tax court has has looked at the issue again. We 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 and I say we but mostly Carl Ghost wrote um, quite a bit of the Hallmark brief. That the tax court has now rejected by seventeen to nothing again, so we are now in the process of looking looking for cases. So we'll be taking this issue back into the circuits, um, with the hope that we can convince the courts that that you don't have to file a tax court tax ta- deficiency case uh, by the by the due date if you have a good excuse. And we, not many people have a good excuse, so we don't think this is going to radically change tax court. Practice. I mean, it'll, it, there'll be some adjustment, but it's but we think the statute is not clear. It's, it's actually an easier case with with the deficiency jurisdiction than it was with CDP. Hmm. And do you, do you so? Uh, do you have any parting words of wisdom uh, or advice for people who are uh, young practitioners like myself, or who are looking to get into tax? Um, well, yeah, I wasn't looking to get into tax. Just stumbled into it, like the rest of the things I stumbled into during my life. So yeah, just go with what makes you, I mean, I, I was happy, I had a great client, the IRS wanted the right answer. I was happy, Villanova had a great school that was very supportive, Harvard very supportive. So just you know, find jobs that you like and work hard. That's my advice. Thank you so much, Professor Fogg. Thank you for joining us. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Tax Justice Warriors. You can visit our website at taxjusticewarriors.com. Please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. The views expressed on this podcast are not official opinions of the IRS, the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic Program, or the employers or people who spoke on this program. Your tax situation is unique, so do not take the statements on this program as legal advice. 
consult with your tax professional if you seek specific advice. There are now three things that are certain in life, death, taxes, and your subscription to the Tax Justice Warriors podcast.